Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jake Taylor, I'll be your pilot today and brace yourselves because for the first time in many years we are recording a podcast on location, hence to all the racket in the background. Um, and where else would that be than the glorious, the essential, that bedrock of British life, the pub. That's right, this week we are delving into the history of this key part of British life, exploring its murky past and potentially murky future. So grab some scampy fries, your comfiest chair, and your favourite knobbly pint glass as we take a journey, quite literally in this case, to the centre of the pub. Hello and welcome to the show. And right off the bat, you're probably seeing, probably noticing a, a rather big missing part from the show this week. That's right, James. Mr. Winter is not here. It's it's funny. We've come to the pub and it's the first time, you know, in a long time. And I'd imagine he'd be right next to me. But no, unfortunately, he's moved himself as far away as possible from me uh, to the other side of the world. We haven't fallen out. He is on very important restaurant business to beautiful Australia uh, but he did leave the keys to the podcast submarine for me so I've taken it out for a spin to the pub but don't worry I will not be riding solo today oh no we have a very special guest back by popular demand striding through the mists of time a brain bursting with the knowledge of ages comes the world's finest food historian to educate us all in lessons from the past it is Mark Meltonville. Hello, Mark. Hello there. That was quite an introduction. I don't know if I can live up to that one. <laughs> I'm I'll sorry. I've tried my best. <laughs> and it's absolutely no coincidence whatsoever the fact we happen to be recording in the pub and find you in the pub. Yeah, yeah. You, you just wandered in and there I was. <laughs> just propping up the bar in the corner. Mm. This feels very daring. Now, I should probably paint a picture to our, our yeah. listeners where we are. So, um, we are in... Uh, the Volunteer Pub at the top of Baker Street. Uh, more on that in, in a moment. But um, we are crammed into the corner of what we were promised by the manager when I called him yesterday was going to be a quiet pub. And we walk in and Mark went, it's not very quiet. <laughs> and you can probably hear in the background. So, uh, yes, we are both crammed in a very intimate way, in a very Lady in the Tramp spaghetti dinner way, around a single microphone. So please do excuse the bumps the crashes the shrill people in the background and uh, mark and i getting progressively drunk as we go through this for hopefully in exchange we'll get some wonderful history from mark uh, and we are on baker street which is and we are two doors up from 221b yes yeah we're, we're within smelling distance of the sherlock holmes museum <laughs> i was having a look at it before we came in i find it absolutely fascinating there's all these people standing in a long queue to be photographed outside a building that doesn't exist <laughs> It's it, true, isn't it? Yeah, well, 2221B, they had to fit in. It's between about 240 and 245. Because oh, yeah. there, never, there never was a 221B. Conan so they just Doyle. stuck that door on the outside they've, of the... They've, if you look at the front, they've made a public door in what was the window, and they've created 221B because uh, Conan Doyle made up an address that didn't exist for his novel. Oh, I love that. I had no idea. Yeah, because you're right. Now you say it, it is a bit odd because it's just that there's that little museum-y place and then there's just a random door. Stuff. I, does it even open? I don't even know. No, that. I don't think it does. It's just there <laughs> for you to have your photograph taken in front of. And, and we're in the uh, the volunteer pub. So we're just at the bottom of uh, Regent's Park, aren't we? Um, just on the nub of, nub of Regent's Park, top of Baker Street. And you know this pub. This is an old haunt of yours, I believe. Yep, yep. Um, what's useful for us on the world of uh, history of pubs is this comes under the Victorian purpose-built pub. We'll come to that in a bit. But it has been modernised and it follows everything I know about the history of pubs, what, what happens to them, because we're now in one large room, which there never was. So 
ask away and I'll tell you how we ended up where we are. Oh, now we've been promising to do this this pod for a while because we've talked about beer, we've talked about wine, we've talked about gin, but we've never actually delved fully into the pub. And I think that saying they're a mainstay of British society is, I think it's weirdly, strangely now, more of a, a spiritual mainstay. It's something that we all believe is a huge part of us, but compared to how we probably were about... 50 years ago the amount of time we spend in a pub even with our best endeavours is significantly less than people would have back then but I was hoping you could step us through take us right back to the beginnings of it and then let's pause as we float through the mist of time to talk about different areas as we go so where did the pub that we know today first begin? Right uh, that was a good question wasn't it that was complicated because the answer is oh um, <laughs> because I think that the history of the pub which is held in time in everyone's mind from when they were a student or the first pubs they went into where they, they sort of crept in for a, a, a lemonade and a, a packet of crisps sat in the garden, all of the They've never existed except for changing. So the pub in history doesn't actually exist. Every generation has a slightly different version of that. And you've just said we're, we're probably heading to a new... Um, new we're probably heading to... The next generation of pubs across England, there are so many uh, plans to try and keep the village pub, they'll, they'll have a whole village, we want our pub, we want our pub, we're going to buy it. And then if you ask for a first question, why has it gone bust, it's because we don't go to it. So if you don't use it, so its function is going to have to change again, and its function has changed over the centuries. It's always responded to what goes on. The pub we're sat in at the moment is one big room, and it's one big room from about the 1980s. They started knocking all the small booths and the two bars that everyone's forgotten about, the public and the lounge bar, which were traditional, except for when they weren't. <laughs> everything, everything changes and adapts. So the, the next generation pub, uh, both of us would be incredibly rich if we could work out what it was going to be. But we don't know that, so, so we, uh, we're gonna have to just sit here. How far back do you wanna go though? You see, the term public house is very specific. We are in a public house, and this one is actually purpose-built. Let me a quick look at the outside. It is a Victorian pub. It was built to be a pub, so it's not a house. So we have to go back a little bit further when we realise that a public house means just that. My house, that I have gained a licence to open to you, the public. So that's where been someone's lounge once upon a time. And back room, the two bars. So almost like you'd imagine like a sort of speakeasy when you see those films where people weren't allowed to drink in America. Well, no, the whole point of a licensed pub is it's exactly that. It's legal and it's taxed. That's where they come from. Right, if we, how far back shall we float? Um, we could float back to places like Pompeii where they have little bars that look just like Italian bars that we've all been to on holiday. So we'll ignore all those because people are standing around a bar drinking, drinking a lighter beer than up here in the north of England. So uh, everything's the same. The first vestiges in English history are what we would now call alehouses. And we think, oh, alehouse must just be like a pub. But it isn't. An alehouse is a house that sells ale because a person, usually the wife, they're referred to as alewives, makes beer out the back somewhere and she has barrels of it in a small room at the back. And you and I bang on the door because we finished work for the day. One of us has bought a jug because you need a jug. And we bang on the back door of the alehouse 
and we go fill her up please give her a penny and then we have to go off and find somewhere to sit and drink it and that's how they were. woman honestly what a job that is so she just spends all day with guys finishing work well, banging on the door for beer well, that's her job that's that's a brilliant thing to be into be a be a uh, an alewife because there's a good income in that brewing on a small scale has always been a female trade it's only commercial brewing that was ever done by men and that really doesn't take a hold until the time of the Tudors around there. Prior to that, it's really, unless you go to a monastery where obviously the monks will be brewing and they're men, but most villages have an alehouse and you would expect the brewer to be a woman. An alewife or the term brewster. A brewer is a man, a brewster is a woman. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. It's funny, isn't it? It's a bit like sort of butchers almost. You'd imagine it to be a very male reserve, men making beer for men to drink. And No, not at no, all. No, no. We won't go through something called the Eight Points of Industrialisation written in 1960 that expands how an industry goes from a back room to commercial premises because our entire audience will be asleep <laughs> by the time they get to phase four. But <laughs> They can't hear us anyway because we're in this noisy pub. Oh, so, 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 they must, so is what happened then? People, these... these or women started out with it in their back room and after a while went, you know what, I'm actually going to turn this into an official place to stop and drink? Yes, but it takes a very long time. The, the ale house, as we know it, just continues on and on and on for centuries, so you go and buy it from there. Now, the problem is, where does Jay and Mark, with our big pot of uh, ale, go and sit? Where in our village has anywhere to sit? On the green yeah. or the bus stop? Yeah, on the green is quite good. We're, we're going to have to wait. Just remember when you were 16, Mark. It's exactly no, no, the same no, rules. Well, we're, we've gone back to the early Middle Ages, so we've now got to wait 700 years for a bus. Oh. So <laughs> no bus We've got stop. plenty of ale. <laughs> yeah, so we're sat there on the village green and it starts raining because we're in England. Where else has got quite a few seats some room for us and our mates I know the answer you told us once it's a church the church yes so we go and sit in the back of the church and we sip our ale and we chat Is with our allowed? friends Am I allowed well in the who's going to stop you and it's supposed to be a communal space so one of the reactions to this feel is, very godly is, is, well, celebrating um, <laughs> one of the reactions to this is a, uh, a small branch of brewing called church ales because there's me vicar of the, uh, the small church that we're sat in the corner sipping our ales and I'm thinking well, if they're going to do this, I'm going to sell them the beer. See, now this is this is me naively, and apologies to our religious not thinking how the church can cash in on ideas. Of course they're going, perfect, in you come. Would you yeah, like a top-up In up you then? come, and on special occasions, because we're coming up to, I don't know, whichever fair St Thomas is in December, come and have some church ale. Come and have some of that. Buy church ale. That was going to be a lot better. So that was one of the subsidiaries. But rattling on are these... these um, alewives selling beer so that's us that's where we live we don't need a pub we can just go and take it home that's fine the next one that comes along of course is travelers you and i are bored with the london life and going down the alewives every week in neesden and that, that's boring that is we're going we're going north or something then you get inns now inns are different again because they're a place to stay the night so the main point to them is you come in they look more like a pub as we know it you can get something to eat there and you can have a bed upstairs for the night and they have food and ale for sale so they're slightly different the people they're from the village I think of though that when I think of in my mind you know when you have those sort of you have your kind of short list of places to time travel to and one of them is a sort of stagecoach in somewhere on the outskirts of London in the pouring rain and you go in I'm wearing one of those you know those hats with the little corners on them and they're one of those jackets with the rain runs off and you go in and there's very sort of burly looking people and they're offering you a pie and a pint and you sit it all in the goes corner. very quiet as you yeah. walk in. That's a- is this is this a is this a real 
Well, take me inside one of those inns. It is, but it really will not have locals in it. There might be. I mean, you, there's no rules to anything. But a town with a coaching inn, somewhere that has stables behind, they bring the coach in, you've got somewhere to put your horse, which costs you a few pennies. You go inside, there's, there's beer, there's food and a bed. So really it's going to be full of travellers. So perhaps that does make it a bit more risky, a bit more um Sounds seedy. more like a welcome break, though. Is it? it sounds like a service <laughs> station. When you say it like that, a I'm thinking, oh, bit. it's a little yeah, bit like a service station. There's people that haven't really, you know, they, maybe it's a raining night, they'll get chatting, they get on, maybe they don't, maybe there's a fight. It's They're, they're transitory people. One of the um, subsets of that, which we were just talking about, how do we make money out of people, uh, if we leap forward to um, the 17th century when there are coaching inns everywhere and um, lots of people travelling around in these rudimentary coaches you get a sudden rise in local currency what's called pub tokens what's that? a pub token is your small change in my tokens so you come in here in comes Jay he's travelling he's going all the way to Oxford he wants to uh, wants to see foreign parts and um, (laughs) stops off and we say, oh, okay, that'll be um, so much for your horse, and you're having a pie, and you're going to have a couple of jugs of ale. That'll be eight pence. You give us a shilling, I give you your change in my pub tokens, which can only be spent in my pub. See, that's like um, <laughs> casino and Disney money, isn't exactly. it? Where they give it exactly these funny the same. Cheeky buggers, how clever. <laughs> that's what you always say. We always think that we are so much more advanced. Everyone is as dodgy and sly and clever as we are now. Often those tokens were accepted around the village or small town because they know they'd get their money back, but you have to spend it before you leave, thus keeping that whole shilling in silver in your town. The town I grew up in, we had a lovely coaching inn called the Red Lion, and it was around in the uh, during the English Civil War, and he produced his own halfpennies and farthings, and on the back it said, better dead than disloyal. Um, and so everyone who bought something and got this up went, yes, he's on our side. It doesn't say which side he's on, does it? <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> to the winner. Yes. Oh, yes, we're, we're on side with him. Yes, he was on side with everybody. Actually, answer me this. This is something I've always wondered, because you know pub signs and pub names? I was told once the reason the pubs are named in quite a simplistic way is because back in the day people couldn't read, so you had to have the white horse because you could draw a white horse rather than actually writing it. Is that true? And why are all the pubs kind of... Why is there such a sort of small selection of pub names? There is sort of true, but most people know where the pub is, so they don't need a sign. So if you're going to the alewife, the alehouse in your town, even if it started to put seats out, you know where it is. Um, if you visit parts of Eastern Europe that are still quite, quite remote... They don't mark any shop in the town, they don't mark the bar, they don't mark the rest, because everyone who lives there knows where it is. So, really, the sign, although there was an, uh, I've got to remember it now, a act, uh, Richard II's act, so about 1390-something, there was an act saying you had to mark where your alehouses were, but that's for tax purposes. My oldest reference for anything like an alewife or, a, or a, uh, a house where you can drink or buy a drink from is Saxon, and all it says is every alewife must pay her tollister. Basically, when you brew, you have to pay your tax. We've always been taxed, and these signs started off as brewing signs. So every time I do a brew, I have to put my sign out. Now, that means everyone in town goes, ooh, fresh beer. <laughs> but the councillors go, aha, tuppence. <laughs> it was, and there's right. a, 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 I like looking through court cases. There was, there's one where a chap gets fined because in the, um, the report from the court 
which is 15th century. He brewed thrice, so he brewed three times, but only put his sign out once. Little bugger. <laughs> That's amazing. So, okay, so the signs all come from the fact that basically you're just being, it's like doing your tax returns. You're telling the Batman that you're actually selling something. Yeah, so you put, you put something out, and, and from the end of the Middle Ages, they start decorating them a little bit more, and they get a bit more local. The early ones are nothing more than often a sun or a star or something very, very simple, but they start picking up local habits, local symbols, and so if you're, whichever county you're in, the county symbol will start, and then you get popular kings and queens, of course. So if Why someone's done king's well... king's head? There's lots of king's heads around, isn't there? I yeah, um, usually that's a popular, popular monarch. Um, apparently, there are more um, William IV than anything else, mostly because he did a licensing act that was very favourable, and everyone he's all right, we'll name our pub the, the King's Head after him, so he's the most used King's Head. And the red and, lion makes sense because it's a her heraldic? Is yeah, they're heraldic lions. Um, where I grew up, we had a white lion, which was the one of the heraldic badges, a few swans, which is, is another. And, so they, and then they're either descriptive, very simple, you know, the... the the, uh, the the farmer or something. Yeah, the there harrow. is a, yeah the plough. Very got the plough near things us. Like they're very quite often simplistic. Uh, I have one in me called the dolphin, which was left over from the French prince. It originally was the dauphin, but it gets really gets trained. and you get. Ones, a dolphin right in the depths of Somerset. Yeah, so they're, off, curious they're often named after um, some exotic French idea, um, <laughs> and they get they get messed around as well because people we're British not very good at foreign languages <laughs> so when when the uh, the king marries a spanish princess the infanta de castilla you open up oh i like her you say i like her we'll name our pub after her we'll call it the elephant castle no no i hope that's is that true as far as we know yes that's fantastic there's one also north london called the um the case is altered lovely little pub and everyone goes, what, what, what? No, um, it's again, it was a soldier who'd been to Spain and decided to name his pub after a place he'd seen out there, the Casa Alta, the high house. But we're British, so we can't say anything. God, that's so good. Because the Sun and 13 Cantons in Soho is one I know. And yes, one, I'd love to know what that probably originally was, because it probably wasn't that, was it? It was probably something in no, it'd be something, Italian. Something that we can't say. <laughs> so you've got inns and... Uh, well, you've got inns for travelling, which if you're a good lad in your village, you don't go in the inn because that's full of funny foreigners, you know, people yeah. from out of town, <laughs> that sort of thing. Up to three, four miles away, some of them, you're not talking to them. Would um, I be welcome? So imagine, what, what era are we talking here? 17, 18? Well, they, they, they go right through the, the medieval into the Tudors and Stuarts. The inns stay very, very similar. Perhaps they get a little less seedy as more people travel, but I'm pretty much doubting. But the village pub, say I go into a village pub around about 1800, uh, and I'm in a village changes. pub uh, outside Reading, for example. Is it, am I going to, is it going to be the kind of uh, everyone stops and stares at me moment? Or would I be made welcome? Would I even know the customs? Would I know what to do? Right. The answer is mostly no. It's the same as when we as students went off somewhere for the weekend and walked into a pub and it, and it just all went quiet because the village <laughs> pub is for the locals. And I, I, with no way we can tell what the reception is. Some will be welcoming, most will be welcoming, one or two will be very, very quiet. And why are you here? Have you come to take our jobs, girls, or whatever? So it's a good point. As you go into, the, I remember going into the valleys pubs <laughs> yeah. when I was a student, and it was very similar. Yeah, some places so, you've got to get out. And quick. then the more cosmopolitan ones, so between London and the various cities, Oxford, uh, up to Cambridge, and so on, probably much more welcoming because they're used to it. So it's, it's all down to usage. But what do you? You've got one missing. You say you've got the inns. 
you've got the alehouses, and you've got the taverns as well. I thought a tavern was just a funny name for no, a sort of ta- fancy tavern. Tavern comes from the Latin taverna. They've got a wine license. They're posh. Oh. So you've, if you've got a tavern in your town, you're going to be a city. That's where you'd be hanging out, yeah. at the taverna. Yeah, I'd be at a taverna. You'd definitely be a confidence trickster of some yes. kind, hanging out at the taverna. <laughs> yes. I've got all this, all this uh, copper coins in a bank account somewhere in Africa. <laughs> yeah. Do you like to buy some tokens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. the, um, yeah, so the taverna, and they only really appear in, in cities, the taverns. They're the equivalent of fine dining. So that's where you and I would go for a meal. They've got a, a good kitchen. They're known for their food. So the, the taverns around London, especially around the city, uh, they start getting mentions in magazines in the 18th century again, saying, you know, you want to eat at the, uh, the Temple Coffee House or the White Hart because the food there is really good. So it's, nothing's different. It's sort of, what, you know what? In, it's kind of what all pubs now, and apologies to landlords out there, but I think majority of pubs I've ever encountered aspire to be certainly financially serving food. And the days of the sort of sticky floor, purely pub pub, is gone so it feels like actually they're not pubs now they're more taverns that we, yeah. we go to every this this one here is certainly a tavern yes. it's not yeah. mega fancy but it definitely has menus in the table and that's what you it's that about adapt or die everybody changes what goes on the big one you're saying when does this when does this start well around the end of the 18th century which has been a difficult period for drinking you've had the gin craze uh, and it's come and gone and come and gone and they've been trying to work out how to stop you and me buying 14 pints of gin at Tuppence Pint, going back to my place and just turning ourselves inside out. It's not a very good idea and it's not social. It's very bad for economy because people don't work hard and so on. You sound like you're ticking me off. It's not social. Stop daring the gin, Jake. I am drinking beer. Well, not really beer. You turned your your mouth when I said I'll get a pale ale. Oh, dear. Uh, Reassuringly, Mark is on a squeezy ale. Yes, yes, it's it's come out of a proper pump where a man pulls on it. So one of the counters to that is to start trying to encourage public houses to open, which serve beer. They're originally called beer houses. The first, um, one of the first acts is about 1820, and they call it the Beer House Act. And you, you in your street, can open your house up and serve beer, which you're having to pay tax on. That's why it's licensed. And we come round, and it's it's all round better for us. Social, communal, play a few games, game of cards, dominoes, whatever and drink beer rather than four pints of gin so we're better off for work tomorrow and it, it, it's encouraged heavily like that there's a second act which they then call the public house act which is about 1830 uh, that does the same they sort of codify it and they start thinking about when it can open they start setting what we think of as licensing hours to stop people sitting in it all day they start shutting them and so on so it, it's, it's there, isn't it social i mean i know you know the government's always been so but it's, it's kind of forcing us to be social in a certain way is controlling very our lives. Good. It's very good for your working population to be gathered together somewhere where you're keeping an eye on each other. What we'd now call watch your mental health. Not sat at home drinking four pints of gin, but saying, you're right, Jay, you know, you don't look so good this week. And you say, oh, I've done this. and Oh, we'll come around and help you. It, it's very good for your community to have a local pub where you, you play, you drink, you, you become each other's friends. So it, it, was a, it was a very good idea, and again, money out of it of course um the problem is well we all come into my back room because i've opened up my my house as a public house i've got my license i'm paying my jacks you everyone comes in they're supping the beer still just out of a barrel in the corner we're still just tapping beer out the corner out out of the out of the corner there and then in comes jay now you're obviously a cut above my usual customers yeah he's got trousers on everything (laughs) and uh so 
I'll go, oh, oh, no, Mr. J, sir, Mr. J, sir, come into the lounge. You don't want to sit with this lot. Oh, I thought the lounge was for the ladies, because well, no. in the old pubs... Well, there, there, there was, was the that, if you lounge. brought a lady in there. But if you look at a lot of the London pubs, there's, there's, there's ladies and there's women. Well, yes, yeah, so a certain type of... Yeah. And so, yes, and so the, the lounge bar becomes this place with carpet and chairs and a little bit dearer. Some people might remember that there was always the price in the lounge bar was always a few pence higher. Was it? Yep. So that you got carpet and it did have chair. nice chairs. Though. Yeah, I it the was better. It was much, much nice nicer. And the other one that's um, invented around that time is the snug. Oh, I love a snug. And the snug is almost a little private room where yeah. you can you can uh, have a have a you and your group can have a private party. Basically. So sort of it's the division of the pub at that point, isn't it? It's yeah. it's because I remember seeing yeah you know. Especially as a kid, they're very evocative memories. But you're going into an old pub in the country, and there was always, especially the working men's club kind of pubs, there was always snug, lounge, and then there was the men's only bit. Yes. I mean, they're, they're, that grows up and comes and goes, and it all depends where you are, whether it's a working men's bar or whether it's mixed, if it's a small East End road where everyone goes down. It, it all depends. You can't say definitely about anyone. At the same time, now if you, my pub does really well because of course it's a license to print money. It's somewhere to go every night before television, so you do very well. And also, I'm guessing the, I mean, this is a massive generalisation, but in terms of scale of accommodation, often large families crammed into small places is the place to go to get the hell away from everybody, right? Yeah, it, it gives you it gives you some time off. So what happens around that early, what we think of as early Victorian times, 19th century, is those that have made money out of their public house, I don't really want you in my lounge, Jay. I want my house back. So I've got enough money to build this, a Victorian pub. So you build a purpose-built lounge and public bar and snug with some rooms. You make it a business. So suddenly they start. So you see them all over the cities of England and specifically in London. This sudden raft of building. So these are not people's homes converted. These are built from scratch. Yeah, they're built from scratch to be a public house, and they they retain all of the the right features, but where I want it. So I've got. And the other thing, when they start building them, is they look back at the gin palaces from the gin craze, and an ale house, a pub, or something, always had barrels either in the corner or in a tap room. So you totter down there. I'd fill up a jug for you, and they thought no. The one thing that worked really well in the gin palaces was this thing called a bar, where everyone just sort of sidled up to that and you could serve a load of people at once. So when they start purpose building them, they nick the idea of the bar from the uh, the, the island, as they sometimes call it, uh, from the gin palaces and say, this is brilliant because I'm going to have 30 lads leaning on it, all buying beer at once. This is fabulous because, you know, when you, you, don't, you, ne- you don't question the kind of... Um immovable aspects you presume the bar has already been there always been there but like you said there's a point where someone goes hang about why do we put yeah, some why do I keep, here and a thing here why do I keep sending everyone over to the table which is what they were doing saying what do you want and you then go off to the tap room bring back a jug of that beer why don't I have you come up to me it's easier and cheaper and my my uh, three three chaps or lasses can serve 30 of you in a couple of minutes <laughs> it is odd you know when, uh, when we came in here and this is interesting that the power of the podcast microphone we've cleared a whole area now it's still probably quite loud on the mic but loads of people who are around to start off with have buggered off and I hope that's not a, 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 a bad indication about the uh, podcast but when, when we came in the guy said, oh, uh, came over and said would you like a beer at the table and I'm like this is I'm so indoctrinated in no I'll come to the bar I even said to him no I'll come to the bar and I, you, you went that's to what the bar we've grown up. <laughs> that's what we've grown up with it's, it's, it's become traditional but it isn't uh, 
what else do you need to invent? Well, you've, you've still got, and actually one of the pubs I used to use as a student still had the tap room. It was run by uh, a little old lady of 90 and her mother. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you went up to the bar and you asked for a pint of whatever, but you still got one. They only served one beer. <laughs> you still got that. Uh, but she would walk off to the tap room, fill up a pint from the barrel, come back, put it on the bar, ask you what the other one was, go and get that. That was the old style. And that's probably one of the last like it. But uh, what, what, you know, you're in the age of invention, Jay. It's the Victorian era. You're, you're inventing, you know, huge sewer systems and steamships and everything else. So somebody thinks, well, why don't I put a pump to just pump the beer up from the barrel rather than have to keep going and walking and getting it? So you get various patents. Some work, some spray beer everywhere. But the, the, the traditional, which we all think of as being there forever, is only about 150 years old. I'll pump it up from the cellar instead of having to walk down and getting it. Why goodness me? Again, one of those things you think that if you were to draw a pub, a pub at any point, there will be taps, there will be a bar, there will be a quiz machine. When were they invented? Victorians? Uh, I, <laughs> I did have. I didn't know the date of the pub quiz. It's 1970-something, their first one. Is that really yeah, the first one? it's quite late. Um... I was told, and I cannot verify this, by a very, very uh, good French food historian, that the beer pumps in France, which you all, when we've all been over there and had the Pint Stella, where they pump it up very tall, yeah, were in fact originally for mustard. Uh, in the mustard um, cellars. Mu- mustard. mustard. They were mustard pumps. Um, and I've, I've seen a couple in May mustard uh, uh, cellars there. They, they originally designed them for bringing mustard up and putting it into pots when people brought it in a, uh, a small grocery and the beer people went, oh, that's a good idea. Who could possibly want that much mustard in any oh. go? It also explains why when you get a pint of the continent it's rubbish <laughs> and you get like two thirds of a head and no beer in it because they're using oh, mustard. I, I can't pumps. explain that. The, uh, the, the, well, well, it all depends where you've grown up because if you've grown up in the north of England you want a swan neck on your beer pourer and you seem to want half a pint of cream on top i was brought up down here around london where beer has three bubbles clinging to the edge of the glass and looks like yesterday's dishwater exactly it's warm warm yeah and, and yes it's basically a well, that's, that's brown cultural that's that's good. Good. <laughs> okay so we've got so now we have a a, a bar and some pumps established mm. which is which is good we're starting to and the, this place has been bespoke made but is this so is this the point where the Queen Vic, for example, I'd imagine, centre point of the East End community. This is this is when it exists. Yes, yeah, so this is when these exist, and they stay really right into the second half of the 20th century as three bars. And if anyone remembers, as you walked in, because you had to go left or right to go to the uh, the nice one or the yeah. the not so nice one, there was an off sales counter because you didn't buy booze. What off sales counter? Oh, no, was, I don't know what's that. No. Yeah, yeah, um, it's where you bought booze to go home because there were very few off licences and no supermarkets. You could buy booze so you, in pubs to take When home. he said, time, gentlemen, please, come on, lads, haven't you got homes to go to? You went via that and bought another half a pint or bottle or filled something Why up. Why did they stop? That's a great idea. Supermarkets. Seriously? <laughs> they can't keep it. Would you buy three more pints at pub prices to take home or well, cans? Well, yeah, 11 yeah. o'clock at night <laughs> yes, when I mean, you're being kicked out. Absolutely, but they can't um, even give you them with the lids on now. Pre-COVID, and I'll be back again this autumn, uh, there's a lot of microbreweries in America which now have a canning machine behind the bar, and they're tall ones, they're pints, 
and if you've enjoyed something, you say, oh, could you seal up? It It fills and then goes around the top and seals it. It's a brilliant and idea. So, and it, it, because it's come off the pump, it'll last about two or three days in your fridge, not much more. And uh, I can see us getting those soon. Well, that's, no, that, that idea that while the pub has changed in its, it, you know, we don't go there every single night, although it's, it's, there's a lot of people in here tonight and it's, it's, it's certainly not a weekend. No. Um, we don't go there every night, but the idea that it becomes a place where you, you go after work and, and if you want, instead of getting it through a supermarket in Deliveroo, you can take home the nice beers you like because so many of these pubs now have got a massive long beer menu. Yeah. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Again, if we were bright, we'd be bringing those machines over and selling them. Well, you're right, you know, because it was also a bit of pomp and circumstance as well, because yes. there is something about the beauty of the beer pumps, mm. and, the, and, the, and it's a bit like, you know, the same as when you go and get a fancy coffee, someone banging and crashing on yeah. it. It's something lovely about people pulling you a pint and making an effort over it and doing it, doing think, it properly. I think we'll have to bring the pubs up to uh, date before we run out of time, because we've got those three rooms and it's all going really well, and then pubs start to struggle and as you've said they start to become all taverns they want to serve food it's a lot of them make their money out of the food well three rooms is useless for waiting and you can't get enough tables in so they take all the sep all the separators out a large number of pubs move their two bars into one in the middle put tables all around they can then allow table service it's a better use of space and the gastro pub is bound and we'll have to wait and see what the next one is. <laughs> so when you say three bars, you meant that in well, each pub there'd be three... Oh, so there's a big centre. bit where the different there's rooms... The, the, there's, the, um, there's the two main bars, sorry, and then the centre section, which is the off-sales bit, the entrance to the place. It's curious, isn't it? Because it feels like there has been a... We've sort of lived through the, 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 the demise of the pub, but also the renaissance of the yeah. pub. No, you can't, you can't say they demise. That what's happened is they've morphed again. Yeah. Uh, from an, a lady that sells beer out the back to, oh, I want to stay the night, so it becomes a tavern, to do you want something to eat, uh, to how are we going to get the community back together. It's, and this is what's happening in small, small villages. People are buying the pub for the village. So what they're doing is creating the Public House Act again, saying we want a communal space for our village. So it just all goes round and round and round. Nothing wrong. <laughs> I love it, though. I love the fact that there is this thing, which is so very quintessentially British, and you see them in other places, but not in the same way. And it, as much as it... Like you said, people not going to it is a, is a kind of uh, a sort of self-declaring act of transition. It's almost like people it's the same in my world of tv if people don't like your show they just don't watch and it kind of makes sure that your show doesn't come back whether you like it or not and it's the same with pubs if it's getting it right people will go there and clearly now the mix of food the mix of good service if it's too posh people don't like it if it's not posh enough people don't like it there's a there's a there's a perfect middle ground where pubs now feel they're so vibrant the idea that you can uh Taking the European idea of you can bring your family for a meal in the day. Every, yeah, adapt or adapt or die, I think, is the answer. And, and always has been. And it's usually, and we do know a lot of pub chefs and landlords uh, write in and listen to this, and we know it is challenging, really challenging, and some of the deals are having to be cut, and we know there's not the money to be made on beer that there once was. But I think the, the endeavour, the great thing about pubs is the endeavour has never, in my mind, been to make it cheap and cheerful it's never going down the sort of route of stack them high it's more a case of we're going to make it better we're going to make the food better we're going to make the beer better we're going to make the service better and it pays such dividends because now going to the pub is such an adventure and also you take people take the whole family it becomes a it's, it's a day out now weirdly it's like the high street the high street died now come back as a sort of place you visit for fun 
Yeah, so I don't think we've see, ever seen the death of pubs. We've just seen them morph to something new. What a lovely, a lovely history. There we are, Mark. Well, thank you. We have driven us... Now, to our viewers, thank you for bearing with the... Uh, the noise in the pub. I hope this hasn't been an unbearable external experience. Uh, we do hope to do many more uh, podcasts on location, but maybe we might pick a slightly quieter place in the future. Um, but uh, for now, our journey through the mists of pub time. Mark, thank you ever so much. A pleasure. Uh, we will welcome Mr. James Winter back from Australia next week. And obviously, Mark will be back. We've got on again soon. But for this week, we will speak to you again very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.